0: It's your boy, and if I sound a little sheepish, it's because I have to start off with a—I don't know—apology is probably not the right word for it, but uh, I feel a little silly. Last week, i, I don't know what was wrong with me. I, maybe I need my brain checked for a brain tumor, but I had all sorts of trouble last week making these—this—these uh, uh, these recordings for you. And uh, I had—I got like five minutes into the first time and realized there was some—I wasn't even recording—and then I started again and. Um, thought everything was okay. And then when I finished recording, I realized that the mic I normally use wasn't even plugged in, or rather the uh settings on my recorder were all messed up and I was recording with the the internal microphone on my computer and it sounded awful. And uh thankfully <clears throat> excuse me. Thankfully, as I'm preparing to go to Taiwan, um I've been thinking about how am I gonna record this while I'm over there? And I remember I have this little lavalier microphone that I can plug into my smartphone, and thankfully I had that running in the background. So, um, you know, the audio is not perfect, but it's uh, better than my internal microphone, so I was able to do something with that. But I also realized after I uploaded the entry that it actually is not my last one. <laughs> I was actually going to record one more before I leave. So, yeah, a thousand mistakes last week, and uh but that's okay. Uh, I'm actually leaving for Taiwan in almost exactly 24 hours. My flight's, uh, it's uh, actually Saturday today. Normally I record these on Sundays, but my flight is tomorrow at about 12.20 my time, and I lose a day, and I get into Taiwan at about 6.30 at night on Monday in Taiwan time. So needless to say, I am super excited. Um, I was going to say I'm going to spend today packing, but um, really packing takes me about 20 minutes. I don't know how long it takes other people to pack, but it's really not that big of a deal, right? You just throw a week's worth of clothes in a suitcase and throw your toiletries in there and uh, maybe make sure you pack some carry-on stuff like a, a book or something. But other than that, there's really not much that you need. It's just the psychological comfort of like letting go of your domicile and leaving the things here that you aren't going to need. I mean, I feel like when I went to Middlebury two summers ago and was in Taiwan over the summer, I just you tend to overpack. You think you're going to need all this stuff, and you, and you just don't need it, whether it's this type of clothing or that type of clothing. And at the end of the day, if you're going to be somewhere for about three and a half months, most of the things that you might need, you can find. You know, it's not like I'm just going away for a week. I'm going to be living there for a little bit of time. So, yeah, anything I don't pack, I'll be able to take with me. Um, But, yeah, it's both very exciting and very surreal that the time is nigh and that I'm leaving tomorrow and that, um, you know, in just a short amount of time, I'll be in Taiwan. It's been a lot of buildup leading up to this. Um, And I was saying, I think I was saying this, I was saying, you know, the previous two weeks, it was just I was getting more and more excited. But then at the top of last week, I don't know, I started to feel a little down in the dumps. And part of it is the weather here, the weather here has been awful rainy and overcast. And, you know, a little bit of that is okay. But uh, after a while, I just start to feel especially not having to work and not having a lot of structure. Now that everything's taken care of, I just felt kind of trapped inside my place. And, of course, I'm watching movies, and uh, maybe we'll talk about some of the stuff I've seen recently. Um, And doing some reading. I finished Lord of the Rings, by the way. Um, Like I said, the ending is very protracted, and um, I also have since, over the course of the week, I watched all of the movies again. Which actually do a really good job of kind of cutting out all the bits um, that actually, yeah, are a little... Um, tedious may not be the right word but they do distract from the kind of straightforward narrative there's a lot of you know kind of side encounters and quests and kind of things that happen in the in the books that you know while fine for the immersive experience of reading a novel obviously don't make sense for a movie and so a lot of times when you see a film version of a book you know the the book is always better and you know Um, It actually reminds me of the conversation we had about video games, which is I was talking about The Witness, Jonathan Blow's video game The Witness, which, again, it's hard for me to articulate what he said exactly, but he said one of his disappointments of people who are video game designers is that they don't really seem to have a grasp of what video games do especially well. And they often approach video games trying to make them like movies. And, you know, I think... The the sort of the masters of each medium kind of have to determine or can can kind of articulate to us what they think each medium does particularly well. But that comment has always kind of sat in my mind, and especially when I revisit his games, try to just consider, you know, what is this game accomplishing that uh, a movie simply can't. And when you and wow, I didn't even think we were going to talk about this, but <clears throat> as I'm playing The Witness again you do realize that it's just kind of a world to sit in. And obviously, you know, books have a certain intrinsic, like, forward-moving momentum, right? Uh, the pace is, you know, obviously a, a, um, a novelist will try to create excitement and momentum with the action of the story. But it does kind of have a built-in pace to it, which is just the speed that you read at. As fast as you read, the novel moves forward, you know, there's no marinating or sitting in a single scene. You can't draw that experience out, or that experience doesn't oscillate depending on who's reading it. I mean, outside of their reading skill level. Like, some of us may stumble over certain words and have to go to a dictionary, or some people just read faster, or, or whatever uh, whatever the case may be. But that, we're all essentially having the same temporal experience. To read Lord of the Rings takes... Um, um, uh, it may take longer if you take breaks in between, but I mean, you're, most people will spend about the same amount of time with a novel. They will clock the same amount of time reading a novel. Uh, same thing with movies. Of course, you can punctuate it and watch it over a couple of days, but the amount of hours you will invest in watching the film itself is going to be identical for most people. In a way, it's kind of, I'm thinking, for some reason, I'm thinking of like a roller coaster. When that safety harness comes down, m- most people are going to get the same ride. Um, but as I'm playing the witness again, I realize, oh, this is interesting because this is, can be a completely different experience it, or your experience inside this world is entirely contingent on who's playing it. You know, certain people are going to struggle with certain puzzles more than others. Um, um, people are going to, you know, especially in a world where you can just kind of walk around, you know, people, you can go to any area you wish. Some people may decide to spend a whole lot of time in one area, uh, but they can get frustrated and go somewhere else um and also, I mentioned this element, which uh I feel like I've hit it in a number of conversations, so I don't need to belabor the point anymore you know, but movies don't expand based on your observations, you know a game can be a world where there are entire areas that are unobserved or discovered, and um I guess it's you know it's not really until you have a designer or a creative or a creator who can who is aware of that, who can implement those things. Uh, Maybe, I don't know if theory is the right word, but they can implement those things into their game design where they can really kind of push the genre forward. And I think this is what I mean when I say, like, in in my experience, I think Jonathan Blow takes the video game and raises it to the level of high art. It's somebody who kind of sees deeper uh, into the medium. Um, Whereas... I mean, in a way, I was thinking, I saw this sort of clip where I have seen it repeatedly. For some reason, Instagram just keeps kind of regurgitating it to me. But it's something I've been thinking about. It's this short clip of Ethan Hawke. Is, is is that, am I saying his name right? For some reason, I'm, I'm conflating like Ethan Hawke and Howard Hawkes. It's, anyway, it's Ethan Hawke. But um, he's the actor from Training Day and Dead Poets Society and um, uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and yada, yada, yada. And uh, just a shit ton of movies and he's never really struck me as like an incredible actor he always has he always seems to kind of be doing about the same thing which is this kind of endearing kind of boyish um kind of thing like for example when i think of training day he's the kind of um optimistic young recruit uh who's kind of put in an impossible circumstance and we kind of you know, he's kind of the the lens of the audience. You know, how would the average person, the everyman, kind of react in a moment like this? Uh, idealistic, maybe a little bit. And then I'm also thinking of his role in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which, by the way, we talked about. We have touched on Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's a I don't I don't know that a lot of people have seen that movie, but that's a very very good movie and. It's actually kind of interesting because Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke are brothers, which is um, strains credulity a little bit because they look nothing alike. However, they play brothers who go in together on this. Um, uh, they're both facing certain financial troubles and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman maybe a little bit more. But they both decide that the perfect heist, the perfect way to steal money would be to rob their parents' jewelry store. Um, And uh, let's just say that it doesn't go as planned, and um, yeah, it's just one of these, it's a it's a really great thriller, and uh, really well acted, Marissa Tomei is also in it, and she does incredibly well in that, but the point of that is, Philip Seymour Hoffman is the more maniacal, um, willing to get his hands dirty type of character, and Ethan Hawke is the kind of, uh, you know, uh, good guy with a good heart, who made it, makes a bad choice, and he's sort of cracking under the pressure, and that sort of stuff, but anyway, I'm just, I'm sort of going off the rails here. The point is, is that Ethan Hawke is not, um, I don't know, he's just never, if you told me to list, you know, maybe even the top 20 actors that I can think of, I'm not really sure he would come to mind. However, this clip that I see is him in a kind of inside the actor's studio type situation. And he makes this observation, which I have to think about more. But he said, so much of film school is focused on cinematography. And... When I think about that as someone who's shot a ton of videos and as someone who's a big fan of film and sees a lot of the kind of, you know, the video essay is kind of like the de facto form of commentary and expression these days. And there's an entire, you know, genre on YouTube of, you know, probably people who are like me where they're sort of cinema fans and they have a lot of thoughts. I mean, basically what I'm doing is just sort of regurgitating the same types of thoughts into this microphone. But people will create video essays. And, you know, they'll pick a certain filmmaker or a certain um, whatever, a certain film, and they'll just sort of kind of talk about why it's special or what they notice about it. And um, that's all well and good. But when you look at filmmakers, so much of the content on YouTube that's generated for them is about cameras and lenses and cinematography and lighting and framing. And Ethan Hawke says you know it's sad to him that most of film school is focused on cinematography when really it should be focused on acting and he makes this observation that the best directors in history were all actors now i don't know that that's true i mean he names people like laurence olivier and um orson wells um but i i yeah that just it it's it it seemed like a little bit of bias on his part uh but why am i bringing this up um yeah, we were talking about Jonathan Blow, we were talking about The Witness, talking about the intrinsic, understanding the medium. Um, yeah, I can't, yeah, I don't know. I can't really think of the connection that I was trying to make, except maybe something about, so much of film seems to be centered around the image quality Um Whereas I think when you're actually watching a really good movie, or maybe maybe I mentioned this way, like when you watch a movie like Lord of the Rings, and I forget what movie I may have mentioned previously, maybe the Marvel movies or something like that, they are technically perfect films, meaning they're shot at the highest um, fidelity, you know, 8K, maybe 30 to 60 frames per second, the color grading is immaculate, the special effects are the best that money can buy. Um, they're at the vanguard of what is technically possible with movies. Um, And yet, they don't really grab us all of the time. Now, of course, millions of people love that kind of stuff. But I mean, for people who are really looking for something substantive, um, who need something a little more sumptuous to sort of sink their teeth into when they're watching a movie, those movies don't really grab you. They feel kind of vacuous. The fact that they're just kind of superficial is glaringly obvious for most people who, um, you know, are kind of attuned to what, you know, really good movies are capable of doing. Whereas I watched this movie the other day called Past Lives. And I think a lot of people were kind of, you know, um, celebrating this movie. And by the way, as soon as it started, I realized all of the great movies that are coming out now are from A24. Am I right? I mean, we spent some time talking about The Curse, which was a co-production with A24 and Showtime, and the Softy Brothers. Um, I think maybe Good Time was originally their own production company. I think I think it's called like Ar- Arata, or I forget what it's called. But I know that um, Uncut Gems is A24, and I'd, I'd be very surprised if their next film wasn't. And Ari Aster's movies are all on A24 and all that sort of stuff, so... It's interesting, like in the early 2000s, Focus Features was like the kind of, or at least one of the sort of film houses that was making all of the, quote, serious films. A24 has really kind of stepped up as doing all the, all the good stuff. Uh, Sean Baker also, I think all of his films are on A24. Um, but the point I was driving at was what? Oh, I saw, I saw this film, Past Lives. It's a very beautiful movie. Like Minari, I think a lot of people have talked about it as if it's a foreign film but i think both filmmakers um are actually korean american and since they're made through a24 i think they're you know you would technically call them american films although like you know minari i would say even more of it is it maybe 95% of the film is in korean past lives maybe 75 to to 80% of the film is in korean they're american films but past lives is this really beautiful movie about um a woman who's born in korea maybe lives there till she's about i don't know 10 or 11 or so immigrates to i think at first canada and then goes to school in the united states Uh, marries an american man but you know the film sort of begins with begins with her first crush her first love if you want to put that in quotes but you know her first real romantic connection is with a young boy her own age and the movie is just about how they're kind of connected throughout their lives and have reconnected at certain points and um you know, the fact that this woman is living this other life and has settled down and married someone, and yet there's just this enduring connection with this boy that she knew in Korea. And, you know, the tension of the film is, you know, what life is possible between these two? Is their romance going to be rekindled? And it's a very, it sounds like a very simple thing. Like, how do you hang a movie on this? But the thing that it does so well. And what it does so important is, yes, it's shot beautifully. I don't know what it was shot on. Some of it looks like it might be film. Some of it it might be digital. Um, and, yes, the cinematography is great and all that stuff. But the, the reason that it's great is because it tells a wonderful story. You know, so many of the shots and so many of the, the best moments of that movie hang entirely on silence and the look between two people and what they're not saying. And... Um, and uh, I, I don't I sort of lost the plot with what Ethan Hawke was saying, but the thing I'm trying to say is that uh, although it's important that film look a certain way, it has to all be in service of the story that you're telling. And so, although the everything is technically great with Past Lives, the reason it is it actually succeeds is because it is entirely focused on the story that it is that it is telling. It's not trying to stun you. There's no great camera movements or something like that. Like when you think that there's a movie called Children of Men, which a lot of people have sort of celebrated, I've never thought it was really great. But I think one of the reasons that it endures is because people who like film love this protracted sequence that happens at the end where it's a single shot. Um, And that's kind of cool. And it's, it's certainly a technical accomplishment and it's the type of thing that people can sort of look at and be impressed by. But... You know, maybe maybe this is not the best example because you actually think, um, yeah, maybe there is a reason to use an uncut shot because you want to make this kind of immersive experience in this. It's like this long shootout chase kind of escape sequence or something like that. And, yeah, maybe there's something to that. But, um, you know, there's just a lot of choices that are made, I think, sometimes because they're technically cool. But, you know, it's not really like is the um, is the story being served in that way. Or in the best way. Um, I saw somebody who actually compared, I've talked about, um, and his name escapes me right now. I'll, I feel stupid. Uh, but he's the filmmaker who did Force Majeure and Triangle of Sadness. And I saw one of these video essays where somebody compared the, uh, the Force Majeure is about this uh, husband and wife and two kids who go on the skiing vacation. And as uh, in sort of the first 15, 20 minutes of the film, As they're sort of sitting at the ski lodge, there's an avalanche. And inexplicably, when the avalanche hits the ski lodge, the dad grabs his phone and runs away from the table and abandons his family. And the dust from the avalanche settles and everybody's okay. Nobody was hurt. It was just a very scary moment where, you know, it looked like it was impending disaster, but nobody was harmed. And the dad has to sort of sheepishly walk back to his family And the rest of the movie is the wife trying to untangle and approach and kind of probe this moment where her husband, in a moment of panic where he should have protected his family, was entirely focused on himself. And the film doesn't ever really give you any clear answers. Like, why did he grab his phone? Like, you know, it sort of hints at, is there a chance he's having an affair? Um... But uh, And the movie does a lot of wonderful things besides. We, we don't have to go into all those. It's a, I, I just highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. But the film kind of breaks. There was also an American remake that was done, which I haven't seen, with Julia Louis, Julia, Louis, wait, what's her name? Julia Louis-Dreyfus? I, I forget the middle part. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I don't know. The girl from Seinfeld. And Will Ferrell. And I think it was called like Snow Day or Snowbound. I forget what the fucking movie is called. It's it's all you know. I haven't seen it, but it's it clearly looks awful. And it's this kind of like it takes this very serious, contemplative, thoughtful, you know, kind of a tourist film. That's a very deep kind of probing of relationships and especially masculinity or the performance of masculinity. And how, and sort of really male fragility when you, like what men are really capable of or how disappointing men can actually be versus, you know, the sense of themselves they try to project to the world. And it does this really good job of showing different examples of the types of performative masculinity, but also counterpoints it with the type of like, what is a real man who can, uh, in the the realest sense, someone who is both in touch with their feelings, but can also step up and sort of. Uh, be a protector when they have to in this kind of very interesting um, sort of foil or counter character to the to the male lead who sort of presents themselves later in the movie, uh, but also really the burden that women have to bear inside relationships when they're dealing with the fragility of the male ego. Anyway, I sound like a grad student or something like that, but it's just it's a it's a very good film uh, that you have to see. But why am I talking about that? Oh, this video essay kind of breaks down how both films deal with filming that sequence of the avalanche. And in Force Majeure, it happens in a static wide shot at a little bit of distance um, where the family is not even like in the center of the frame. They're obviously the focus. It's sort of compositionally, so you're, you're, you're aware that they're there and you're watching what they do, but they're also surrounded by people who are also in focus and you can look at, and it's very well-blocked. And it's just a static shot that you watch and all the action takes place. And in a way, if you don't watch it multiple times, there's a lot going on that you might miss. Like, for example, when you watch it the first time, you may not see that the husband grabs his phone um, and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, you have to think that in a single shot, a director has done more for the story and for the characters and for the world that they're creating than this sort of counterexample in the American-made version, where it's just filmed like a, you know, a typical scene where there's close-ups and there's quick cuts and, um, you know, there's singles and then there's wide shots and it, you know, I think there's like I think the the video essay says in the same sequence there's like twenty two cuts or maybe even more that happen in this single scene versus one that was shot in a single take, and while one is more technically involved and you know has more going on technically the one that does less actually does accomplishes more and i think the same thing is true of past lives when you watch that movie nothing about it wows you with the cinematography there's no crazy crane shots or something like that it's all very subtle and um you know some of the most beautiful moments in the film like i remember when the the korean um woman and her sort of you know a boyfriend from years ago comes to visit her in uh, in New York City where she's living. They're walking below the Brooklyn Bridge, which is an area I've actually been to. There's like a, a very famous park there. It has a carousel and all that sort of stuff. And they're just kind of walking along. And they're just kind of at the bottom of the frame at a great distance. And most of the frame is just filled with the environment and other people. And obviously their conversation and the audio is front and center. So you know kind of where they're at. But it's just you know, a single kind of wide tracking shot that just sort of follows them. And it just does, uh, yeah, it just does wonders for creating this kind of like immersive world that these two people live in. Um, And also it sort of subtly psychologically suggests that although these people are the center of the story that we're focusing on, this is all happening in New York City, one of the most densely populated places in the United States. And while we're focusing on their story, it's also the case that there are a million stories happening just like this all the time around them. And so it's this sort of interesting dual, like macro, micro sort of exploration of these people's lives. And the grand scheme of things, you're constantly reminded that it doesn't really matter. And yet, when we zoom in on, you know, when we pick two people out of this, um, uh, collage, uh, this pastiche, well, now we're really using the grad school language, this this, this Americana pastiche of romantic life, um, you know, it's it's this sort of kaleidoscopic sort of thing sort of happens. And actually, when I think about Force Majeure, you could probably say that the same thing is happening as well. When you're watching that sort of wide shot of the avalanche happening, it's not just happening to this one family. You're seeing all of the people who are sitting on the deck of the ski lodge are in frame and in focus, and you could rewind the scene a hundred times and watch a different person or a different couple or a different family each time, and you would have the exact same experience. The only reason that we're focused on the one couple who, you know, visually there's nothing special about them is because we know who they are, Um and in a way i think it also communicates the same thing which is you know in there's a lot going on in this moment but we're just going to sort of bias ourselves to this one family because that's who we're sort of prejudiced to attune to but uh again it's this sort of i don't know it's just interesting that you can with with one shot you can create multi dimensional things versus you know cutting and fast cuts and and all that sort of stuff so um So what am I saying? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just to sort of tie this up about video games is, you know, I've I've never played a lot of these kind of war shooter games like Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto and all that sort of stuff, but they have a lot going on. And, uh, you know, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but, you know, a lot of obviously a lot of people like those video games. And yet I think most people who come to The Witness would probably play it. And there's really not a lot going on ostensibly you're just walking around solving the same the same types of puzzles. You just encounter these panels that are kind of grid maze type things that you draw lines through and have to solve. But and yet it's the most it's the it's probably the most profound game I've ever encountered and there seems to be a story in there. Obviously there is an island and there's these sort of there's this sort of the remnants of a material culture that lived there that is both at once kind of primitive but also futuristic and it seems to suggest a story to you Um, but it never explicates itself it just kind of is there for you to see or not or to spend time with or not again you can just go through the game and solve the puzzles and you've beaten the game and you've had your experience and that's fine And yet the thing that a video game can do is, uh, especially when it's designed as well as The Witness, is you can spend as much time looking at something as you want. You can walk over to an area and, you know, just kind of walk around a tree you want. Or if you find an interesting statue, you can just kind of walk around and see it. And so, yeah, maybe not to belabor the point, but is this interesting to think about if you're an artist? You know, are there intrinsic... Things that your medium can do that are not being exploited. um, That can help you kind of tell your story. But also give a unique experience to the person who's interacting with it. So, yeah, maybe just to kind of connect it to movies or something. There's a lot of people who design video games who are just trying to make them cinematic. You know, they're trying to make them movies. But, you know, is that really the is that really the best that games can do, or can they do something else entirely? I mean, as I'm trying to think about it, I mean, you know, a movie, a symphony, is there, you know, and if you take video games as being potentially high art, I don't know that there's any other creative medium I can think of where you can have as individualistic an experience, right? Right. Like I said, I mean, people bring themselves to whatever they look at. So somebody can look at a piece of art and, um, you know, have some sort of personal connection with it that's entirely predicated on their personal story and their history. Same thing with music or films. And also people just have certain preferences. But I'm trying to think, is there anything else that you can live in and have as unique an experience as a video game? And it's just interesting, interesting to think about as we're on the cusp of, you know, a kind of meta universe with like, you know, I, um, maybe one thing to say is, you know, I was, excuse me, as I'm stifling burps here. Um, but as I'm leaving for Taiwan, I was thinking, I, I mentioned that I want to do some some vlogging and and shooting video. And also, how am I going to continue doing this sort of personal journal? Um, the sort of intimidating thing was, how was I going to handle media? You know, if I'm shooting video, do I just buy a bunch of memory cards? Or how am I going to store stuff? And then also editing. Am I really going to come back and just spend the next two months editing the footage together? Well, I actually decided, you know, when I go to grad school anyway, I'm not going to have my desktop computer. I'm going to have to buy a laptop. So I just ended up buying one now. And... Uh, Although that was an expenditure, I, I admit I, I had to. I, I I was very smart about how I did it, which is, of course, you can look at the newest Apple MacBook Pros and get the M3 and sort of max it out and and get whatever you want. But I have found when you look at like benchmark testing for a lot of these um, uh, computers, although you know when you look at the specs, they seem to be very different. Like when you look at how many cores or how much RAM or this or that. Uh, between like you know the apples that came out 4 years ago and the and the latest ones you know the, the the although on paper there are differences when you actually see like go on YouTube and look at benchmark testing where people actually try to um uh quantify you know what kind of difference does this make it's uh, it's exceptionally it's exceptionally negligible um I, currently, my desktop computer is like an Intel Mac from 2017. Now, the new Macs use this, I think they're silicone. I think that's kind of M chips that they use now are silicone. That is a fundamental shift in technology, which makes a huge difference. So um, so anyway, long story short, what I did was I got like a... a, a re, it's it's sensibly new, but it's refurbished. Maybe there was something wrong with it when someone bought it. Apple takes it back, sort of fixes it, and you can go to refurbished Apple and get a bunch of old stuff, but you get a very comparable computer that does essentially the same thing. And it's like a thousand dollars cheaper. So if you're in the market for a computer, I would highly encourage you rather than just getting the latest and greatest, go to refurbished, um, and just get something that's, that's comparable. Like for example, the benchmark testing that they do, you know, especially if I'm going to be handling video, maybe even shooting in 4k, although I've since decided I'll probably stick to 1080, um, you know, when they do this benchmark testing with like how these computers handle video, between the M one MacBook Pros from like three, four years ago and the brand new ones, there's maybe a couple seconds difference in like rendering times and that sort of stuff. Um, which is good. I mean, technology needs to move forward. That's you know, it's gonna move at the pace that it moves. But for most people, is that gonna be worth a thousand dollars? No. How about you save a thousand dollars and just spend two more seconds? on the export for your computer, right? So anyway, yeah, I ended up getting a laptop um, for, I think I got a model that now would probably sell for like 2,500 bucks, and I saved about $1,500 on the computer. So, uh, But where was I going with that? Um, I know that's... Yeah, so I think, uh, although I'll have to use a different mic and I'll have to use that lavalier mic, I still think I'll have most of what I need to continue the personal journal. I'm going to be doing a lot of... I'm telling myself I'm going to be doing a lot of filming and um, um, doing some video editing while I'm in Taiwan. But why did I bring that up? We were talking about video games. Why did I switch to computers? Can't remember. Can't remember. Oh well, that's probably just a sign that it's time to change topics anyway. Um I will say I had this kind of um new frustration that has arisen. And in a way it was it was kind of a little more devastating because it happened on the heels of like buying this computer, which uh is I mean it's a great investment. I'm I'm uh like I said my computer is about uh 7 years old now, so it's probably about time to upgrade anyway. Not that there was any problems with my last computer per se. I had some problems with the external stuff recently and I had to reinstall the operating system, but it seems to be working, you know, as good as brand new. So uh, there's a lot of life in it yet. In a way, it's sort of like my truck, you know, like sometimes I beat myself up over like, oh, you're going to Taiwan and uh, you're buying a laptop or whatever the case may be. I feel like I'm putting my money in a pile and burning it. But, you know, overall, I'm a very, I, I live my life pretty frugally. You know, I've lived in the same place for the last 16 years. I probably pay less in rent than anybody I know. I've had the same truck for the last uh, 22 years now. And uh, I think about like, um, I went to Target recently and had to get some socks and underwear for my trip. And I realized as I was there, because I actually, I ended up buying the wrong socks, had to go back the next day and, and return them. But as I was standing there in Target returning stuff, I realized Every single piece of clothing that I have is from Target. I was literally wearing Target socks, Target pants, Target underwear, Target shirt, and I was returning stuff. So as I was going up, I went back upstairs and was looking at new socks and even trying on some other shirts. I was like, if someone watching the security camera didn't see me walk in, they would assume that I was walking out like stealing clothes that I was trying on. But it was just kind of an embarrassing thing to be standing in Target and realizing, oh, they could just pay me to be a fucking mannequin for Target. They could just have me stand there, strike a pose, and I would literally be modeling the clothes that they sell. I'm a walking billboard for Target. Which, uh, you know, I think what I really need is a stylist. Because like, I don't know. Like I you know, it's weird like buying clothes off the rack like every once in a while you find something that fits like really well and is really flattering, but th- for the most part this stuff is just like you know, it's made to fit as many bodies as possible and like sometimes I'll see these videos. Like literally just yesterday I was looking up a video like how to roll up your sleeves because I bought this kind of long sleeve shirt and although it looks fine, I wanted to roll up the sleeves, but I was kind of having that thing that most guys will probably understand, which is when you're rolling up long sleeve shirts on a dress shirt or a, you know, a denim long sleeve thing, I don't know, like a casual, but kind of a dress style shirt, you can get that real tight sleeve and it's all fucked up and you just don't know. I feel like there's got to be a guy who has a YouTube channel who can show you like the right way to roll up your sleeves. So I was looking at that stuff. Um... But you also tend to see these videos, too, where it's like how to dress for your body and all these types of things that, like, like I bought this sweater about six months ago. And although it's really comfortable, I realize it feels good, but it's actually too big. And when I catch myself in the mirror sometimes wearing it, I go, this thing hangs all wrong. Like, I, I actually probably look worse. I should be buying something that may feel a little bit tighter, but it actually holds, it hugs my frame and, like, actually shows, you know, what my physique is versus this kind of baggy thing that actually kind of makes you look bigger. So it's like, I buy clothes off the rack all the time, but I don't know if I'm hurting myself or helping myself. Because some things may be comfortable, but you think from a stylistic point, I really need someone to say, like, for example, you watch these shows like Queer Eye for the, well, actually, I think they just call it Queer Eye now. They used to call it Queer Eye for the straight guy. But when you watch Queer Eye and stuff, sometimes you'll have these people who are kind of been alone for too long. They're kind of zoftig and they really could use a makeover, and when they're in, uh, you know, they're in the store with the guy who's the, the sort of, um, the well, just call him a stylist. I don't know what you call him. He has them try on things that they would never wear themselves. He says, "Hey, wear the tighter jeans. Wear the wear the slim jeans, uh, and all that sort of stuff." And it's things that they would never put on themselves, but when they actually try it on and look at themselves in the mirror, they realize they look a thousand times better. So I feel like I need something like that. I do all my shopping by myself, but it's like I can't really trust. My own judgment. You know, I'm the guy who styled his hair as a Wolverine flat top when I was in seventh grade because I thought it looked good. I looked in the mirror and I said, hey, this is me. I had no idea how fucking silly I looked. I mean, I remember one day like getting my haircut, going home and styling how I styled it, which was this crazy flared up Wolverine looking flat top. And I was just like walking out the door. My mom was coming home from school and she just stops in her tracks and looks at me and goes, whoa, what's up with the hair? And I was like, what? Don't I, I, like, I literally thought I looked great. And it was only like five years later where I realized, oh, my hair was fucking insane. Like I used to joke, like I've obviously lost my hair now and I shave it. But I was like, I might as well because even when I had hair, I had no fucking clue what to do with it. I mean, I even look back on pictures of me when it's like I wore it short for years and years and years. I mean, I think I first quote shaved my head when I was like like maybe 19 or 20 or something like that. And I've always worn it short since then. But even then, I didn't realize how receded my hairline was. I mean, I remember being like 22 and my friend at the time, uh, we had a, a girl who was a mutual friend of all ours. She pointed out to me and my brother, he was like, well, you have receding hairlines. And I had no fucking clue. And of course, I look back on photos and I go, oh, I had a fucking majorly receded hairline even in my early 20s. But for years, even up to about 30 you two or something like that i would still wear my hair it was short but it was a little bit longer than it should have been so i just had this like i think i heard joe rogan one time saying he had sad hair for a long time and i realized i had the same thing it was just thin and like it would have been much better if i had just shaved it like i do now but that's the kind of world i'm living in where i don't really see myself you know so uh yeah what am i saying here uh i was really about to talk about this uh Nightmare experience I had with Shanghai, and I sort of uh, got diverted into and into making fun of my physical appearance. But um, yeah, I need a stylist, is what I'm saying. I need someone to. I need a makeover. I need a. I need a queer eye makeover. But the thing I was really about to talk about was this sort of frustration. I talk about yeah. I I buy a laptop. I I. It seemed like one of those things where I just kind of put my money in a pile and I'm burning it, which is I probably mentioned that. You know, During my time leading up to Taiwan, I was like, oh, I should go to Shanghai and visit, since I might be going to graduate school there. Um, I should go and, and see Shanghai before I move there for two years. But I had actually kind of talked myself out of it, thinking, well, I'm not going to know if I'm accepted into Fudan University until you know my time in Taiwan is sort of ending, and it's going to be difficult for me to get away from class and all that sort of stuff. But... Two weeks ago, I was in therapy kind of talking about this. And my therapist was kind of like, well, look, your priority in Taiwan is not going to be class. It's going to be having a good time. It doesn't seem like your grades matter that much. And although I'm not going to tell you to blow school off, if you can find a way to get away, it, you know, even if you get accepted to Fudan, if you go to Shanghai and you're like, oh, I absolutely fucking hate this place, that's going to be a good – it will be worth the investment to have visited and see the city and, and get a sense if you're going to enjoy it. Rather than, you know, because at the end of the day, you could go and not like it and leave, right? If I if I get accepted to graduate school and go, I could go to Shanghai and I could still leave, but that's going to be a much harder, um, uh, that's going to be a much harder thing to back out of than if I know going into the experience that I'm either very excited to return and and live there for at least two years, or to figure that out when I get or figure out I I don't like it when I get there, right? However. So anyway, well, what I should say is I decided, okay, great. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one week while I'm in Taiwan and I'm going I'm to go to Shanghai. And I sort of looked around and I started watching some of these travel videos. Uh, and I said, man, Shanghai looks incredible. I'm really excited to go. And I start looking. I realize I need a visa to get into China from Taiwan, which is – it's 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 really bizarre, right? Like if you watch the news now, Xi Jinping is very adamant that there will be a reuni- reunification between uh, what they call mainland China and Taiwan. And China is adamant that Taiwan is a part of China, and yet um, they certainly don't treat it that way because you need a visa to get to and from there. But And I don't want to step on the sort of um, surprise that was in store for me in terms of how this plays out uh, for traveling. But I sort of went on the... uh, San Francisco has everything, right? So there's a Chinese consulate in San Francisco. So I download their visa application form Um, and I fill it out and all that sort of stuff. But I realized, oh, this is probably going to take too long to process. I had assumed, since it took me two weeks to get my visa for Taiwan, that it would take at least that long to get my visa for China. So I had sort of abandoned that process. You know, I said, I'll I'll just sort of get the, the documentation in order, and I will take care of this when I go to Taiwan. I will go to the China consulate or visa office and just have this taken care of as soon as I get to Taiwan. However... On Tuesday of this week, as I'm sort of clicking around and sort of looking into this stuff, all right. well, I did two things. When I look at the application, there's these forms that say, like, what is your flight number? What is your hotel? And I thought, I don't want to fuck around when I get to Taiwan. I want to have all this stuff taken care of. So what I'll do is I'll go online and I'll book a plane ticket and I'll book a hotel and I'll get things that, are cance- that I can cancel or are refundable or take a minimal loss on in the event that it doesn't work out. But let me just get all of my affairs in order so that when I fill out the visa application, they, I'm going to make it as easy for them as I possibly can to just sort of let me go through, right? So I buy the plane ticket. I buy the hotel. I got all my affairs in order. So I complete the documentation. And as I'm sort of, I said, well, I should really look and see where the offices for the China consulate are in Taipei. Lo and behold, I come to learn that China has no consulate offices in Taiwan. Absolutely none. And when I start looking, well, which is devastating for me. And when I, I start thinking, well, how do Taiwanese people get into mainland China? Like when I was in Taiwan, when I was in Tai, when I was in Taipei last summer, the father of the host family I was staying with, who I only met once, he like owned a factory in Shanghai and would fly between Taipei and Shanghai all the time. So obviously, travel between the two places is is doable. I was like, if there's if there's no visa office, how do Taiwanese people get into mainland China? And I, I I was I was able to find some information on that. Like Taiwan has some travel agencies and things for people who hold Taiwanese visas. But look, but I hold a U.S. passport, obviously. And if I were from the flying, if I were to go to the visa office here, that process is very straightforward. But since there are no consulate offices in Taiwan. It was looking to me like like I think what a lot of US uh, passport holders have to do is they actually have to go through the China consulate offices the China consulate offices in Hong Kong which meant I would have to fly to Hong Kong go to the consulate apply for a visa and essentially just wait in Hong Kong for like a couple days until the visa was processed, assuming there were no hiccups, by the way. If they needed anything else, I may have to provide that and then wait a little bit longer. But I would just have to go to Hong Kong to get my visa and then either, you know, maybe fly directly to Shanghai or fly back to Taiwan until it's time for me to take my trip to China. And I thought, that's fucking insane. I mean, if I had to do it, I would seriously consider it. I mean... If anything, you could sort of spin it as like an excuse to visit Hong Kong. Although I've never really had any compulsion to go there, I would certainly try to make the best of the circumstances. However, I just found, actually through a video blog that somebody had posted on YouTube, uh, he was a German traveler who was flying into China. And when he landed, he said, oh, I've arrived here without a visa. And I was like, how the fuck is this going to play out? It turns out that China, or actually not all of China, certain cities in China, major cities like Shanghai, Beijing, maybe Guangzhou and and Chengdu and places like that, I think, certainly Beijing and Shanghai, I'm sure some others, have a 144-hour no-visa layover type thing, which is if you are flying onto a third country, you can enter Certain municipalities within China for 144 hours, which is I think is six days. You can make fun of me if I'm wrong, wrong. but I think that's six days. And so now I'm thinking the best plan might be to just keep the plan, keep the sort of plans that I have there. And um, uh, I actually see that my friend is calling me. I'm going to look forward to calling him back here, but I'm going to finish this. Um, Fly into Shanghai. Uh, spend six days there. I'll have to change my uh, hotel and, and flight to, to sort of leave a day early, but then fly to Hong Kong because I think I might satisfy the conditions, right? If going to Hong Kong, it's, uh, you know, I think, I, again, I don't fully understand this stuff, but I think Hong Kong is fully autonomous. It's considered a different country within China. So I think if I fly from Shanghai to Hong Kong, I can technically enter Shanghai for 144 hours, and uh, maybe not even have to do the Visa thing at all. So, um, oh, wow. I can actually see that my friend's leaving me a voicemail and it's like showing me the text. Anyway, I'll look forward to calling them right back. But, um, yeah. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, I know we normally sit here for an hour, but, you know, maybe I'm thinking, I don't know. I'm just kind of, Filling time here. I'm not really sure I have much else to say. You know, I do this thing in therapy sometimes where I only maybe like once or twice a year, but we'll kind of be coming to the end of a natural lull in the conversation, and I'll look up and there's like ten minutes left in our appointment, and I'll say like, you know, I normally don't do this, but I really feel like this is a natural place to stop. I'm not really sure I have much else to say, and uh, if it's okay with you, I think I'll just kind of end early. And that feels like a weird thing for me to do because I sort of enter therapy with this mindset that like uh it's like going to the gym and like working out which is like well one I mean it's exorbitantly expensive. And my therapist understandably I'm not trying to give this person a hard time but you know they raise their rates every once in a while. And so I'm you know they told me oh when I come back their rates are going to be increased. And that's great and of course, you know there's a um fiduciary element to therapy, and you know, obviously, my therapist deserves to make a living, and they have bills that need to get paid, and so I totally understand that. But it's therapy is exorbitantly expensive, and so it, uh, other than my rent, it is my highest expenditure by far in my in my budget. But uh, why did I bring that up? Oh, yeah. So there's a part of you that says, "Well, you should get your." And by the way, it's not even an hour; it's 50 minutes. Like you should get your full 50 minutes of therapy uh, if you're going to be paying that much. And yet sometimes, like it's like, uh, you know, work will say this sometimes. They're like, hey, we're looking for people to come in on Saturday and we'll pay time and a half. And it's like, that's great. And if I was really in dire straits for the money, I you know, that might be a perfect opportunity for me. But there's so many things that people try to compensate you with money. And you say, hey, I would actually pay you that amount to not do it, actually. If that was already on the books and you said, hey, actually, we're looking for people to stay home. You would just have to pay us time and a half. There's a lot of people who might take that offer. So anyway, what was I trying to say? Yeah, so sometimes in therapy I'll sort of cut things short. And uh, I don't know, I'm trying to go through the Rolodex of my mind and saying if there's anything that I can bring up that might take us over the, the finish line here or if I should end early. Yeah, maybe just the last things to say would be, you know, I'm really excited to be going. Um, I look forward to taking a lot of video. You know, I've I've done this thing. I hope it doesn't sound, um, I don't know. I can't think of the word, lecherous maybe or something. But when I was in Taiwan over the summer, I did a lot of dating. And while, you know, I'm not a serial dater, I'm not a womanizer or anything like that, the reason that was such a big, important part of my time in Taiwan, I mean, I I think I went on like, I forget what the number was exactly, maybe like 11 dates with nine different women. The reason that was so valuable, aside from it's nice to have new friends and companionship and all that sort of stuff, is but for those experiences, there would have been so much about Taipei and my experience there that I would have completely missed out on. You know, it's just, a you know, for people who have traveled, you can probably attest to this. There's something completely different between doing all the sightseeing and the tourism ah this is how it all comes together folks it's like the witness it's one thing to just kind of enter a world and see what is apparent and do what you're supposed to do and you can go to taipei and you can see all the sights and eat all the food and and you're going to have a wonderful fucking time there's no doubt about it it's going to be great and yet if you have a local person who can just take you to one different place or just kind of change the relief of your perception of the environment to just kind of look a little bit deeper or to turn a corner that you never would have turned or to point out a detail that you never would have recognized. Otherwise, the world just kind of opens up, you know? And so, of course, uh, you know, everyone I sort of met was, you know, relatively good. Some people were better than others, but everybody was friendly. And also, in Taiwan, I'm sure casual hookups and stuff happen all the time, but in my very personal experience, the overarching like dating culture there is people really look for they they approach it like making new friends and my sense is that you know relationships are really predicated on like is this somebody i can spend time with is this somebody who i could see as a friend first and things are they move at a much slower pace so although i did a lot of dating it wasn't like i was a, a lothario or something like that you're really just like hanging out with new meeting people and hanging out with them and um In preparation for that, I've been on like the dating apps and that sort of stuff. And I've connected with like a lot of really cool people, one person in particular who I'm looking forward to seeing. But it's like the conversation is great and people are friendly. And um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to going back there and not only seeing my friend, Gabe, who uh, I'm sure you'll hear more about, who's there uh, currently studying, someone I went to Middlebury with. I'm looking forward to seeing him and having a great time. I'm looking forward to revisiting a lot of the places that I went to but i'm also really excited about meeting new people and having new experiences and um you know just you know seeing what it's like maybe to live abroad potentially not for the long term i don't see myself being an expat or anything like that but you know if i'm going to be living for 2 years in shanghai in that part of the world hopefully doing more traveling um you know i was sort of saying you know i got into the language study because of my interest in chinese philosophy and wanting to read you know the sort of classical Chinese texts in the original language. And although that is still somewhat of a goal of mine, meaning in grad school my major will be uh, Chinese philosophy, uh, it will be an English taught program, but we'll be reading in the classical Chinese, and, and, and I will get that. And over the course of my life, I can develop that facility. My absolutely favorite part about the language study has been the places that it's taken me. So when I go to Taiwan, although I'll be enrolled in a language school, you know, I will give it the attention that I want to give it, uh, but the grades don't matter. And really it's just uh, a launching point for me to return to Taiwan and and experience that place and the culture and the rest of the island and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting. The last time that I went there, we were not connected. I was not doing this. I had not been doing this for a while. And it was really nice... Um, to have that, a lot of the experiences that I had, right? So when we last disconnected, I was ending my previous relationship, um, which I'm trying to think now was two and a half years ago. God, time flies. And, you know, we only reconnected a couple months ago. So I was living, you know, all the experiences I had in those two years I was having in relative isolation, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm really not active on social media, um, And so, but that that was really nice, you know. It's like I wasn't living for other people. I wasn't worried worried about broadcasting my experience to other people. I was just having this kind of siloed, kind of insulated, wonderful, formative experience. And it sounds bizarre because I am also on the cusp of saying, like, oh, I'm going to start doing these video uh, uh, vlogging or something like that, uh, and and documenting my experience to this personal journal. I I plan to still continue doing that. But for me, that feels very different than social media. and you may have different feelings about that, but it, it you know, it feels very different to me than like kind of posting your Instagram stories you know, although I still have other creative aspirations, this is kind of my creative outlet for now. And um, you know, uh, I don't pretend that I put a lot of uh, inv- I, I don't invest a lot of creative thought into this, but I feel like showing up for an hour once a week and just kind of venting my thoughts uh and trying to be honest and earnest and speak my mind is a type of creativity and to me uh, a little bit different than you know just posting your best photos to instagram and looking for likes and stuff i mean at the end of the day you know not a lot of people listen to this anymore and um you know i don't interact really with the people who do listen so this is just kind of a one-way broadcast system for me to sort of express myself and uh I will probably be approaching the videos in much the same way. Um, but I look forward to that, you know? I guess what I, I guess to summarize, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I, I just feel like I'm on the cusp of another growth experience in my life. And especially as I get older, I had this long sort of conversation with my therapist in our last session since I won't be seeing them for three and a half months, where it was bizarre, but we ended up, you know, like this. I sort of show up and start talking about whatever comes up. I was talking about death and mortality, but i'm only thinking about that now because I think, especially as you get older i mean i'm thirty eight i'll be you know I'm, I'm, i'll be forty before long if i 'm god willing i'm halfway through my life, plenty more life to live I hope, but the point is is that as you get older, your mortality becomes very real, and so i'm on the cusp of this great experience of like going to Taiwan for a few months and potentially going to Shanghai for a couple of years and you never know how long your life is. You never know how much time you have left. And you know, when you're younger, especially me, I I, I feel like I, you know, I have I have the, I have a lot of thoughts on this. But sometimes one lane of my thinking is I wasted so much time. You know, and a lot of that was predicated on I was dealing with my own mental health stuff, and there was a lot of things that were like keeping my world small that felt like they were outside of my control. But now that I'm free of a lot of those stuff. That, that stuff, I really feel like, I just feel really blessed and really grateful and really fortunate, you know, that I have the, um, I mean, forget, you know, traveling and like buying a laptop and all that sort of stuff. That really my circumstances are really literally afford me and 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 figuratively afford me the opportunity to have these types of experiences. And um, I think I'm, you know, whereas before going to Taiwan, I was terrified because I wasn't sure what I was going to encounter Having been there, uh, I'm really looking forward to it, knowing um, what the experience could be potentially. So uh, I'm grateful to be doing that. And uh, yeah, and I look forward to sharing it with more people. Um, Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I wasn't sure we were going to have a lot to say, but look at us. Uh, Lo and behold, we've crossed the finish line as per usual. So with that, I'll just say, you know, wish me a safe journey. And, um, Yeah, if you listened up to this point, I appreciate that. And I look forward to sharing more with you. So I'm going to spend the rest of the day packing up. And I will just say thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.